Welcome, everyone, to another program of the New School at Commonweal. How many of you have never been before to the Commonweal? Considerable. So I'll, I'll just say a few words about what we do here, which is always funny. I was talking to before and saying that every time one describes what Commonweal does, it somehow is different. <laughs> There's no uh, real solid description. We're fairly... Uh, amorphous, but essentially we run 12 programs, 12 or 15, the number varies, uh, dealing largely with the health of the planet and the health of individuals. Uh, the New School is a program that s specializes in addressing what we refer to as nature, culture, and inner life, where people from the other programs in Commonweal and the Oceanographic or the Juvenile Justice or the Cancer Health Program, all of those programs have a remarkable array of people funneling through Commonweal. And this is a new school is the program that's devised to help create an interface with the local public and some of these wonderful people who come here. So I would like to, before we begin, to introduce the executive director of Commonweal, Susan Braun, who over here, is um, sadly leaving us. This is one of her last appearances at Commonweal. Uh, Susan has brought an amazing amount of uh, warmth and professional care, and uh, just she's left a remarkable mark on Commonweal, leaving us much, much more strongly poised to go on into the future. So we're very grateful to her. Um, and I'd also like to introduce at the back of the room is Kira Epstein, who's the coordinator of the New School, who does so much to bring all this about. And to introduce Michael Tilson Thomas, uh, who really does not need an introduction. And <laughs> I will say about him that he is um, a conductor, a composer, a pianist, an educator. He has, I guess, is it 17 years you've been music director of the San Francisco Symphony? Which now is the longest running tenure of the 100 years of the symphony. Um, I'm actually tied with Pierre Monteux at this moment, but oh. <laughs> once, once I make it through the first week of next season, I will be as you described. Great. Um, he has, Michael has over 120 recordings under his name, which is quite remarkable uh, accomplishment given the range, everything from Bach and Beethoven to Carl Ruggles and um, Henry Cowles. Uh, sorry? Yes. Elvis Costello. Elvis Costello, yes, as well. There we go. Um, and in thinking about Michael and thinking about introducing him or the fact that he doesn't need an introduction, I was thinking uh, about a poem by Whitman called Who Goes There? And there's a stanza in there that reminds me a great deal of Michael that goes, um, uh, I exist as I am, that is enough. If no other in the world be aware, I sit content. If each and all be aware, I sit content. And I really feel that Michael has um, 
given us so much. And as much as he gives and we receive, that he comes from a place that knows what he wants and knows what he has to give, what he has to offer. Not that he doesn't have angst and fears and frustrations, but the contentment, I think, he embodies a certain kind of, of, of knowing, and that makes him a remarkable teacher. Um, when I think about Michael as a personality or as a, a performer, um, his lineage, his pedigree in the world of music is amazing. And I was thinking about, when I was very young, I had, right out of college, I had a fellowship and I, I went and lived in France for a couple of years. And at the foundation where I was for a six-month period, a 75-year-old Harvard philosophy professor came, was also a fellow at this place. And he and I were the only ones who didn't have families with us, so we spent a lot of time together. And we would go for walks together. And on one of these walks, he at one point happened to mention that his first job uh, out of graduate school was at Cornell University, and he came to Cornell for the first semester, which turned out to be the last semester that Ludwig Wittgenstein was teaching there. And I said to him, I can't believe <laughs> I'm walking with a man you know, who used to walk with Wittgenstein. I was blown away. And he said, he stopped, he said, I think I know what you mean, because Wittgenstein told me that on Sunday mornings, Brahms used to come to his house and play piano. <laughs> And before us sits Michael, who, uh, as a pianist, studied with John Crown, who studied with Rosenthal, who studied with Liszt, who studied with Czerny, who studied with Beethoven. So I would say that we have a very well-prepared guest today. <laughs> um, Michael's grandparents were stars of the Yiddish theater. And for those of you who have not seen the great performances on PBS, you can either download it or get it as a disc, a show called The Tomaszewskis that Michael wrote and directed and starred and sang in. Um, <laughs> and he spoke about them lovingly in this, and he said that what they brought to New York to that, the idea of Yiddish theater was the idea of entertaining, educating, and elevating. And that they were very aware of building an audience. And I think that this is something that Michael has genetically embodied himself. That they were doing that for one audience, Michael has done it for the world. And um, I think we're all very blessed by the gifts that you give us. Um, so let's start a little bit back. <laughs> we survived that, good. <laughs> <laughs> let's go back to the shtetl a little bit. Um, your grandfather's... <laughs> let's go back to the shtetl. Okay, <laughs> Your grandfather's family, for generations, were either cantors yep. or home music makers. 
Yeah, they, they were either uh, chazans or badchans, and a chazan, of course, is a, sac a sacred singer who deals with the shape and formation of the liturgy, and a uh, badchan is essentially a kind of entertainer uh, who is the kind of person who stands up on a chair at a wedding and sings appropriate songs. Uh, but in a way, b what both of these people do, uh, chazans and badchans in village life, uh, is they carry forward a certain musical tradition which definitely has elements in it that people expect at that particular holiday, at that particular occasion in life. There's a, this element of what they, what they need to hear, the words, the songs, the cadences, what they, what it, what they expect to hear. But it's also the, the uh, performer's responsibility to supply new material, to be able to be free enough to improv, uh, to weave in the particular details of the names of the specific couple that's being wed and what their own family histories are and kind of little jokes and ironic references to one thing or another that various levels of people in the community know, you know, levels of information that is uh, both uh, treasured and uh, rude and whatever it may be celebrated. So that it, it is in both senses a way of kind of using music to uh, carry forward and expand a certain kind of consciousness of the group, a certain kind of sense of identity. And uh, the pull that I can see that my ancestors had was that I, in the process of improvisation, which is what my great-great-grandfather, who was perhaps the most uh, famous cantor in the, in the family, uh, he was, um, as I said, he had a wandering spirit and he did not spend enough time studying the liturgy, but instead he improvised many hours a day on the violin and read poetry in German and Russian and other things. So this is so interesting to me because my grandfather also improvised many hours a day. My father improvised many hours a day, at least two or three hours a day in sort of two or three, in maybe 40 minute uh, periods. And I realized that my father had a kind of other life that whatever was he was experiencing in his own life, he was able to sit down and sort of begin sort of where he had left off in his improvisatory journey and continue to explore and develop that space, which was founded on some of the show tunes, Tim Pan Alley kinds of things that he'd grown up with in his own music, in Jewish music, but that increasingly went further and further out into uncharted territories. And that for him, was a, he was such a consummate dreamer who had in many ways great frustrations that the circumstances of his life had not allowed him to realize on an appropriate scale the, uh, the, the, what his dreams were. But inside of this improvisation world, he was a completely free spirit who continued to explore these remarkable territories, just as he was a remarkable voyager inside of his cooking and inside of his gardening and inside of many things. So. Although I was on this track as a kid from a fairly early age of uh, seeking to master the particular métier of a rather highly uh, demanding 
art, I was aware of the fact that the big prize really was those who had this access to the dream space and were able to uh, have it as, as a kind of resource inside of their lives. Let's, um, the idea of the forging of the identity, um, I think uh, it brings us forward to, uh, to you in Los Angeles, in your childhood. Uh, I've heard you say that in light of all that you've just said, you know, I'm just a village musician with a really good education. <laughs> That's really true. Um, let's talk a little bit about that good education, because you really were in a hothouse. You might have been in Los Angeles in mid-20th century culture, but you had a very unusual uh, milieu from which you were able to draw so much. Yeah, sure, because my father and my mother both worked in the film industry. I, my mother is a researcher uh, for a number of years, and then my father as a script writer and kind of adapter of scripts. Uh, Paul Muni was a kind of uh, cousin. He had, he had married a family cousin, but he had grown up in my grandparents' theater. So when Paul Muni, some of you probably know who he was, uh, when he began making all these big movies like The Good Earth and The Life of Louis Pasteur and these kinds of things, my father came out to Hollywood to sort of help Muni adapt material for, for his own use. And uh, that led to him doing other jobs like um, uh, directing a lot of screen tests uh, at Warner's and at Metro, and uh, he was just part of a big circle of people. Almost all of them were New York uh, theater people, radical New York theater people. A lot of them he knew back from Project 891. My father worked on that with Orson Welles on a number of very intense things. And then they all came out to Hollywood, and they were living their lives uh, making all these movies happen and also maintaining their own quite uh, leftist and uh, blitzed out view of things that I don't think I have to explain that to this crowd. Um, that this was, uh, so that was his world, but then they were all having their interactions with the other emigre world the, which was the Austrian, German, Russian, and of course as a young kid, I started to bounce off these people. I saw Stravinsky conduct the first time when I was about 10 or 11 years old, and then I probably met him for the first time just in, glancingly from when I was around 14 or 15, and then by the time I was 18, I was actually playing some pieces under his direction and going up to his house, and the same with Heifetz and Piatigorsky, and then there was the whole Schoenberg circle. Schoenberg had passed on in 54, so I was too young really to know him, but there was this whole big circle of people, musicians like Leonard Stein, uh, who were still very much active. And then, of course, there was the whole other circle of, there was, you know, uh, Anna Mahler, and, uh, and well, and Anna Mahler. I met Anna Mahler when I was about 11 years old in my godfather's bookshop. And she very briefly flirted with me, actually. She was, she was about 85, and I was 10 or 11, but I was everything that she liked, namely a musician, Jewish, and male was very important. <laughs> so there was this brief moment in which her, her attention very much was on me. So I have a very, had a very strong idea of what she was like. And as Mahler's music was unfolding for me, his sort of, his evocation of das ewig weibliche, the eternal feminine, which he got from Goethe, of course, but 
it all fits together. You know, the, I, I, again, it all seemed to me, from the example of all these remarkable people, all these emigres, that, that things in some way did fit together. That all the, the seeming puzzling diversity of life did connect. That, that cooking and ceramics and music and dance and poetry, these were all one thing, but that also somehow what they were attempting to describe and express was also one thing. And I, I knew that when I was in the presence of things which were very beautiful and in, in a very original and startling and challenging way also, in the way it was, you can imagine for me as a, as a very young kid, 13 or 14 years old, to hear these pieces that Stravinsky was premiering there in Los Angeles, which were very often became 12-tone, very abstract pieces. And as I began to play in those myself, but the wonder of suddenly, oh, here's this whole new world of this, this astonishing original uh, shape that's coming out of this remarkable uh, little old man. But I, and some of it was so beautiful and startling. And, but the same way when I'd hear a, a discover a new Gershwin tune or see a remarkable new painting or something that was very beautiful on my rambles in the desert with my father. And I knew that it would, it would bring me to tears. It was so beautiful that it brought me to tears. And I would get this expression on my face, this sort of, you know, kind of half smiling, half teary expression. And I, there was such, that, that's, it kind of met, represented what the experience of wonder to me felt like. And I knew that I'd gotten that primarily from my father. And I asked my father about it. I said, what is this, Dad? You know, I, I, that these things happen, and I just get this feeling, and I get this expression on my face, and I know that that's exactly the expression that you have on your face. So I know it comes from you. So what does this expression mean? And he said, that's the expression. <laughs> so that kind of underlying thing was a big part of it. And then, what, funnily, that all connected when I got interested in, in comparative religion and was reading a lot of uh, Asian religions in, in Buddhism. And someplace in one of my Zen studies, I came across a statement by a, a Zen master who said, things are not as they seem, neither are they otherwise. <laughs> and that's, that's the expression. That's the expression. <laughs> that's exactly right. And things are not as they seem, neither are they otherwise. If, if, if you know, like, uh, the, the, there's, a, there's a Zen patriarch called Hote, who uh, is very famous because he attained enlightenment while yawning. Yeah. <laughs> He's the subject of many beautiful many, scrolls. Exactly. So all this stuff was kind of coming together and shape a lot of the, the choices that I made. And as far as the music business is concerned, it could be summed up by saying that all the choices that I made in the first part of my career, most of the choices that I made, people, most of the time I was asked, what the hell are you doing? And it sort of changed to a point where more often now I'm asked, this thing that you did. Could you explain <laughs> what it was that you did? Yeah. It's kind of like Commonweal 35 years ago. This was the lunatic fringe, and now it's the mainstream. Um, but I was going to pick up on the Yiddishkeit. Um, you, in 1966, you went out of this milieu to Bayreuth to yes. be the assistant to Friedland Wagner. Yeah. Something How like was that. that? How did that happen? Because Friedland was a wacky, wonderful, uh, original person, and 
she, uh, she was the only member of the, of the uh, Wagner family who was not a Nazi sympathizer. And she had left, uh, she'd basically escaped to Switzerland thanks to Toscanini, and then she'd gone to England. And then after the war, she basically was given control of the Weyrot-Feschbielhaus, which she said uh, she was in no way competent to do, that her brothers had to do it. But she was the process through which the family was allowed to continue there. She only asked that she could have a master class in which she wanted to bring new, interesting, talented people to experience what Wagner's vision actually was. So she was out around the world looking for people in Japan and Southern California and Israel, uh, bringing people there to, to be part of that. And I, she brought me there. And uh, I, someone on the staff became ill, so I got a job as rehearsal pianist after about a week that I was there. And then I had that whole season there of playing that material, which, which was an incredible uh, revelation to have that sort of immersion in that world. And especially these were singers, those of you have some, this was the era in Bayreuth of uh, Birgit Nielsen and uh, Hans Hotter and uh, Wolfgang Windgassen and Evelyn and Tom Stewart and yada da 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 da, you know, really legendary Frida, uh, Astrid Varnight, legendary people. And I was so involved in that music uh, and lost in playing, especially Parsifal uh, and the Ring. But it was full time because it was like slave labor. I mean, you were just in this crypt, frozen stone crypt. It had no heating in it. It was, you were, you know, but it was kind of like Bolinas in some ways. You were kind of, it was in the middle of the summer and you were bundled up, you know, playing the piano, trying to feel your fingers. <laughs> so they, that uh, after these literally six, seven weeks of playing rehearsals of nothing but Wagner, seven days a week, so I actually had an afternoon, part of an afternoon off, and I went into town, and there was a yogurt bar, a mish bar, and I went to this uh, place to have some yogurt and fruit, and as I was sitting there, onto the jukebox came the... Brian Wilson's piece, uh, Good Vibrations. <laughs> it's the first time that I ever heard it. <laughs> and it so blew me away, at, uh, particularly because I was in this whole world of Wagner, the Gesamtkunstwerk, <laughs> you know, the universal message of everything. And I just thought, this is totally universal message, and it's only three and a half minutes long. <laughs> this has a lot to recommend. <laughs> Do, 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 good vibrations. And it's a masterpiece. You know, it makes all, the, all those pieces that, you know, that was, of course, a day in the life. All those things are right around that time, which I recognize. Of course, this is exactly what Wagner is trying to do, but it's just been condensed down to this <laughs> format. Now, of course, Wagner has many, many more pathways and byways and parentheses and sub-parentheses and... But that's an interesting question, isn't it? I, anyway, of what an artist does. I mean, so that it's a question, the relationship to the artist and his public, just how far does the artist expect the public to go? How much time are you supposed to spend to follow someone? So it, it's a question of levels of devotion. This guy is a total Proustian, as you know. So the, the twists and turns of that are amazing. Some people can commit to that. Not everyone can commit to that. Uh, Joyce is a great example. I totally accept that Finnegan's Wake is a representation of the ins and outs of every scintilla of 
of Joyce's uh, subconscious, I personally don't want to devote that much of my own life to follow all that's part of his subconscious. What I'm looking for more is someone who will give me a dazzling seven or nine minutes that is so intricate and so provoking that it causes me then to go back into my own life and see new things in it. That's kind of what, what I'm thinking, what is, what is the actual purpose of what an art object is supposed to be? How much is it supposed to be in the life of the person who makes it? How much is it supposed to be in the life of the person who, quote, consumes it, unquote? And where we are technology-wise, where is this borderline of how a piece can be created but has room inside of it for those who are participating in it to change it and mold it to their own designs in some way? A number of artists in the 20th century experimented with that in different ways. John Cage, for example, a much, much misunderstood uh, artist, particularly because so much of what he really was talking about didn't necessarily relate to some of the, quote, pieces, unquote, he was creating, which were more kinds of demonstrations at a particular time and place of ways he wanted people to think. Let's talk about 4 minutes, 33 seconds as an example of Cage, which is a piece of, you know that John Cage wrote a three-part, is it a concerto? No, it's, a, it's just a piece. It's just a piece, but uh, all three movements. It can, be, it can be played by any instrument. It was originally done as a piano piece, but recently there was a performance at the Proms in London, which was for chorus of 300, <laughs> orchestra, concert, band, and whatever else. And what's significant about it is that it's silent. There are three movements, and no music is played, but one is called up to listen, and what you hear are the sounds of the world. That's the music. And I think it was uh, Henry Cowell who asked if he could do a theme and variations on it. <laughs> um, so you're talking about, in a way, what you describe often as music, as the place that, that takes you to some other place that you go to some other place when you make music. And it is a question, in a way, um, when you go to that other place, either with Wagner for five hours or Brian Wilson for three minutes, uh, to what degree is this place that you go to, uh, the otherness of it? Um, How much of that balance between silence, internal hearing, and external uh, music making, how do you balance that, that place where you go? Uh, because you have talked about, you know, you, you evoke a kind of serenity, a sense of eternity, say in, in, in Mahler's Ninth, you bring up a, a real a sense of space. And then you personally have also, in your career, conducted Steve Reich's Four Organs at Carnegie Hall, where it was like the rite of spring, people were booing. How do you, uh, um, how do you find in yourself at the time what it is, because your book's so far in advance, how do you know internally where, where you want to go, where that other place is? And can you find the same other place in all of those different works? There's a lot of different questions. Uh, <laughs> 
entering into the music is for me like going to another place, like going to another reality, another, another very specific place. And pieces, I've said something like you mentioned, a Mahler symphony or one of these, these large dimensions, I think of them as being like national parks. So I come back to this national park, which is called Mahler Ninth or Beethoven's Third or whatever it is. And it's like, oh, right, I remember this park. The trail goes this way, and it goes, there's a jog here, and then we have our first view of the glacier. And then, so going back into, to experience that park, of course, it's like going to an actual park. What changes these trails? We walk around this common wheel trail so often. But every time we walk around it, it's different, isn't it? According to the light, according to where we are in the circumstances of our day or our life as we walk around it. And very importantly, in terms of performance as well as music, the company in which we find ourselves, who we're going on this walk with, is very different. And so for me as a performer, it's very different. The musicians with whom I'm taking this voyage but also the audience that's listening to us. So it's, it's, there, there are lots of different levels of how people are experiencing that, and, and there's lots of um, mystery about what the interactions really are. And, and there's mystery in something like when I first, most importantly, imprinted on Mahler when I was 13 years old, when by accident, I heard a recording of the last movement of Mahler's piece, uh, Das Lied von der Erde, The Song of the Earth, the last movement, which is called The Farewell. It was completely by accident. I was, was asked to listen to this. And it was a life-changing event because the music expressed feelings and issues, questions about life which I recognized were so much the questions of my family's lives, which were so much the questions of my life, which I had not had the clarity or the courage even at that point yet to ask, but somehow knew were there. And it was overwhelming, shocking for me. To, how is it possible that someone could have experienced this and written this and here it is all is? Who is this person? What is the story? How do I explore this. And that happens in all sorts of different ways with music. It's a similar experience I heard when I heard the, the Monteverdi Vespers uh, of 1610 the first time. It was that same shock of, of just the, the, the depth of expression and feeling and, and, and wonder and that same sense which is perhaps wrapped up in the temporal element of music that I, that it's, it's so beautiful, it brings tears to your eyes because in somehow or another you sense that it can't possibly last. It's too beautiful to last. But therefore, just the instant in which you experience the wonder is all the more to be embraced and cherished, which is kind of the lesson we're all trying to learn about life, after all. Huh? At the end of that farewell, uh, Mahler added uh, the words, um, er Irvad, is it? Evish. Evish. And it, and it very, very quietly fades out. Mahler died in 1911. And then in 2011, uh, the symphony finished their complete recording of the Mahler cycle of symphonies. 
Uh, Leonard Bernstein, in 1961, recorded the first full cycle of Mahler symphonies. And it's fascinating to me that that's halfway between where we are and when Mahler died. And that somehow he conducted these 50 years after Mahler died, and you, the San Francisco Symphony uh, completed their cycle in 2011. Do you think, because this is all within reach, within our lifetimes, um, how do you feel that Mahler, hearing Mahler, has changed, if at all? How do you feel that we, we know Mahler better? Certainly Bernstein had, uh, became like a poster boy for Mahler, kind of uh, advocating for him at a time when people thought of him more as a conductor than as a composer. You thought of Mahler more as a conductor. Yes. Uh, and also people think of Bernstein more as a conductor than as a composer, I think, by and large. Uh, in this age, and we, perhaps in 50 more years, will think of him more of a, comp of a composer than as a conductor. But do you think that, um, given the changes in those 100 years, that we bring something else to Mahler, or there's, some, there's certainly something that we don't bring because the world is so different? Well, you, uh, Mahler's an example. Mahler and Ives, interestingly, are both examples of a, a certain relationship between uh, the composer's imagination and uh, mastery of the idea of shape or form, which perhaps for this na nature of this discussion, uh, I'd ask you to think about not so much about the shape of, of a sculpture, although it is like that in many ways, but more like the way you would perceive the shape of a film, for example, that you go to see a film, it's clear you can say, okay, there's a structure to this film, the way the different scenes are presented, how the flashbacks occur, what the proportions are, what the, the, uh, the, the, the treatment, how much light or darkness is in the film, how the graininess or the texture or the, the, the concept of the edit, the process of, the, of, of these, these kinds of things. Mahler was way in advance in his thinking of such kinds of processes inside of the realm of music. And I believe that, that his work anticipates in all sorts of ways things that Lang and Murnau and people, visionary directors did in the, in the early Film years. directors. Directors, yes, so. uh, did in, the, in structuring these, these films. But of course, there's another thing happening, which is the relationship between Mahler and the materials that he's using, because both Mahler and Ives like to use material which has a very particular twang or savor to it, so that the material that Mahler is using sound like a particular kind of march or a particular kind of folk dance or a particular kind of uh, waltz of some sort or a particular kind of uh, squeaky village music which could even be represented by the very specific squeaks and squawks of village bands or quote untutored unquote uh, performers, which again, uh, Ives uses very much the same process of what the, the material is very often of a very folky ethnic kind of origin, but the process of its development is very, very intricate. And there's something that goes back in the history of music that relates to that, because this is in a way also what Schubert and Beethoven uh, were doing, Mozart less so, but Schubert particularly is somebody who's using kinds of materials that go back to what I call, that's the kind of primal music. So the, the music that we know, where does it come from? Well, initially, music is something that people make as part of their actual lives. 
And so there's music which is used for harvesting and for planting and for courting and for mourning and for uh, marching up a mountain or, or repulsing an enemy or for celebrating the gods or what, whatever it is. There are all these very powerful kinds of musics, primal musics, which are associated with actual activities of life. And going back to what it means to be a village musician, of in, in, the, in a village situation, people definitely say, oh, right, it's harvest time. I know what harvest time sounds like. There's this song that goes, that's harvest time. So therefore, as, as abstract musical forms start to develop, Somebody might write a piece in which, let's say somebody like Schubert might write a, a piece in which a string quartet would play, and the audience would think, oh, sure, I know that kind of tune. I know a harvest tune that goes like that, except, wait a minute, it's not going the way the harvest tune goes. It, it, it went this other way. Now, why do, why do we go this way? Oh, I see, because he wanted to show me that underlying this was this thought. So, but there was that sense of the, the, the essential understood meanings of things that everybody grasped because they, they were in a society when they were still having as their own musical experience the relationship between that particular music and their particular lives. That's way, way harder today because people are disassociated mostly from actual music-making experience, or it's certainly not connected to something like hunting and harvesting and planting, let alone religious experience. So that Charles Ives very commonly based his pieces on hymn tunes or uh, folk dances because he hoped that people would be able to follow the enormous intricacy of his thinking because they would know what the original was. It would be easy for them to follow it. Now, 100 years after he wrote this music, less than 100 years after he wrote this music, almost no one today knows these pieces. So this is what I have to go through. Uh, when I'm working with a new orchestra on a big Ives symphony, the first process I go through, especially if they're young musicians, and these days by me, everybody's a young musician. <laughs> so th the, the first thing I have to do is I have to teach them all these songs. So it's an irony that a nice Jewish boy like me is spending my time teaching people things like, Jesus, lover of my soul, lead me to thy perfect light, because none of them know that. <laughs> well, I'd like to. Um, I think it's my context again. Yeah. That's right. This, this whole issue: what's on the sacred side, what's on the profane side. Well, well, I guess what the boundary lines between those things are blurrier than even uh, subatomic particles. Uh, and. Uh, it all fits together in some way, and, and people have to take extreme positions sometimes in life or inside of art. Sometimes you really, well, you're always grateful to people who have to take extreme positions, especially if you think because somehow in the cosmic order of things, because so-and-so has to take such an extreme position, I don't have to take that position. I accept the fact that it's necessary for someone to take it. That's the way I feel when I see uh, Sometimes people that we call, that society calls people who are crazy. I, I, I so res respect them and I think that somehow in the, in the cosmic plan of things, 
they have to, someone has to be that. Someone has to be in that space. This time around, it's not my responsibility to do that. You know a great deal about music, I think, from your own experience also as a composer, the way you talk about what Mahler puts in. And I thought we'd uh, highlight a little bit um, and listen a little bit, uh, Ken, um, to your role as a composer. I have queued up uh, the great American baritone Thomas Hampson singing a Whitman song, uh, We Too oh, Bought. I don't want you to play this song. Okay, forget it. <laughs> I, only, I, only because this, when to, this is an earlier version of the song and it's changed a lot. And the artist, the temperamental yeah. artist. <laughs> not, not only that, but I mean, it, it also it has to do with uh, a problem that I have in my own particular kind of music, which I just went through with somebody who was doing something on YouTube, that almost always I'm writing at the beginning of what I write, very simply, not sentimentally. But it's the nature, because it's tuneful, that people want to give in to some of what's there, whereas I want them to see it much more coolly. Don't get bogged down. Keep going. It's the same with the Mahler Symphony. Mahler is so specific about what he wants to happen, what he does not want to happen, because as attractive as all of these very various folky, twingy things are that are going on, he wants the big shape to be perceived. For him, it's the total picture that is the most expressive thing. And that this is this is a harder thing. Going back to so this idea of what where is this balance in music between uh, between abstraction and expression that. Music, of course, is a completely abstract art, yet is the most emotionally uh, involving art, perhaps. But when I was a lad, I, I met Otto Klemperer, and uh, he said, as he, I'm sure he said to many young conductors, remember that the highest priority, the highest priority in classical music, young man, is the projection of the form the projection of the form. And understand that the form is not an intellectual question. It is the supreme emotional question of the music. So that's one of those things you think, oh, I must remember that. You know, <laughs> and, and whatever that is, 40 years, now, 40 years after that conversation, I have some clear idea of what it is. Um, Although it segues very well with um, the text, because Whitman was also somebody who understood implicitly about the form, and yes. the form being emotional, not intellectual. Yes, and, and yet with, the, with this kind of improvisatory process, seeming improvisatory process, which, which is part of Whitman. But Whitman uh, actually planned to write a poem about song, about music, which he never completed, there's only a sketch of it. Uh, and it says something like this. It says, uh, a poem about songs about music. All the songs of the world, the song uh, the, 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 the mother sings, the song that the soldier sings, the song that the uh, carpenter sings, the song, songs of chi Chinese songs, uh, Hindu songs, uh, African songs, you know, all the, the marches, laments, the anthems, the uh, uh, 
frivolity. All the songs of the world seemingly in conflict with one another, yet perhaps from a wider perspective, all merged into one great song of mankind. So he never wrote that piece exactly. There are obviously references to those thoughts in, in things he refers to about music. But uh, that is what Charles Ives did. That is exactly what Charles Ives achieved, is that melding of all this level of different kinds of musical materials into one, for, back, for lack of a better word, cosmic uh, anthem. Yup. Um, we had a wonderful experience here a year or so ago where 52 readers read through Song of Myself. Yeah. Uh, and I was very struck by the musical sense of the poetry, that you could hear music in it, which I'd never really heard quite so clearly before with poetry being read. And Whitman, was, of course, was a great lover of opera. Mm. And, and I, uh, that had been an idea I had known, but it wasn't until I heard this read by different voices that that really came through. Tell us a little bit about, um, about some of the other texts that you've set to music. You've done uh, Dickinson and Rilke, I believe. How do you make those choices, and, and uh, how do you, uh, in your life that's so full of conducting, how do you, how do you make room for that? Uh, I could possibly live my life without music, but not without poetry. I, poetry is really uh, essential uh, to me, um, and in terms of In terms of Whitman, of course, I read all sorts of poetry as a kid and then up through uh, classes and college and all that, you know, things. But then when I was around 34 or so, I started reading Leaves of Grass. And maybe because it was because that I was around the age that Whitman was when he wrote the poems, it, it just floored me, and then that became my constant companion for the next 10 or 15 years. I Where was never, you? never without that book, and, and still I'm not without. Where were you when that, you were reading that? Do you have a sense of where you were when you read it? Were you in L.A.? Were you, um... In New York, I think, but then certainly it was uh, definitely in L.A. Well, I became like, you know, kind of a apostle of Whitman. I just had this book with me every place, which says, have you read this, have you read this? Because, of course, it's, it's so extraordinary that the, the poems written in 1855, they can still burn off the page the way they do. You can't, these words are so powerful and direct and, and revolutionary. And it enraged me to think that I had not been allowed to understand this work when I was in school, that, that I had been presented, not Whitman and Dickinson and, and Emerson and everybody else in such a way which was so that kind of to make me aware that they existed, but at the same time to prevent me from actually understanding what they had to say. So it was all this frippery and inconsequential things about, you know, fogs and whatever, captain, my captain, and blah, blah, blah. You know, just, but, but none of the central, right, shocking, breathtaking uh, vision of it had I been allowed to know. 
And one of the major perpetrators of that was Whitman himself, who, of course, obfuscated so much of that emotional power in the last version, where he decided that he wanted not to just be a man, but he wanted to be a myth, and that there are certain things that you could not allow for. And so he uh, boulderized his own texts. And that's, I think, part of the reason also, is because we read a, a, an essentially uh, changed text in the hand of the poet, and because, in general, we take the last word of the writer as the final word. We've accepted that for so long. But now going back to the original 1855 text, you see the, uh, the intense, intense focus and energy and complete lack of concern for what other people think that comes through in those pages. And uh, the 90, the, what they call the deathbed uh, edition of Leaves of Grass is, a very tepid, but is very tepid by comparison. Well, yeah, but you know something, that deathbed edition, there's plenty to transform your life in, in the deathbed edition. It's, I mean, it's, it's yeah, I mean, basically, basically, you know, the, the, the in, intense eroticism and revolutionary aspect of, of what's in the original forms of those poems was definitely softened over the years, although interesting that sometimes the prefaces to the different editions became more specific, oddly. I, and you can tell this, Eric and I, and there are this, well, too bad the $64,000 question no longer exists, because we could go on, you know, like, <laughs> as what, of the subject of uh, leaves of grass or something like that. But that you can endlessly get lost in, in the permutations and changes of all this, but still that was a powerful vision. The same with Dickinson, that Dickinson is presented as a very, very kind of light, decorative, charming poetess. <laughs> and she has enormous power and sweep and, and I mean, just one of the poems that I set, which starts with the line, uh, the, the Bible is an antique volume written by faded men. <laughs> And it <laughs> proceeds from there. Uh, or really wonderful little Zen-like ones, like uh, nature assigns the sun. That is astronomy. Nature cannot enact a friend. That is astrology. <laughs> so there's a lot to think about and a little and what's great about it, too, is that you can remember it. And this thing about what you can remember and keep with you, whether it's a melody or whether it's lines, I, I remember a lot of things, just because it's the way I'm wired to remember, but also because I grew up with a generation of people, those emigre people, who I remember said, young man, it would be great if you learn this piece by heart, if you learn this poem by heart. I mean, because, you know, some of us, you know, we experienced in our life a time when we were taken away and everything was taken away from us. And in the camps, the people who knew a poem or a song were the people who were truly rich. So you don't forget words like that. You know, you, you represent, I mean, you're almost, you're pushing 70. Um, <laughs> uh, you represent I mean, and still you're like a poster boy for the vitality of, of culture. And... <laughs> poster boy for the vitality of culture. 
too bad Liza Minnelli's retired. <laughs> I'm sure she'll do a comeback. <laughs> but you know, you're, 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 I mean, and look at the audience. I mean, we are, let's say, let's admit it, we're a fairly geriatric bunch in, in relation to the culture. But somehow what you have managed to do, Michael, is understand that the foundation has to be laid for the future. And that you of all conductors that I can think of, of all musical celebrities or luminaries, I mean, you have understood technology and how in order to, I mean, you might not get young people to memorize things instead of text them, but with things like um, the YouTube Symphony and, and the New World uh, uh, Academy, you've created a situation where people don't have to go into classical music with the emphasis on classical, on, on the rear regarding, the backward looking uh, frame of mind, that there's actually a future. And that there's a way in which people, you know, young musicians now can do a master class in their bedroom, Skyping with somebody who's around the world. This is something that you've embraced. And I think it's, it's remarkable to have both both sides of that at your disposal, and, and that you have, um, you've created the possibility of, of, of this going on, this dialogue continuing in a way that so many other cultural institutions have, have been tearing their hair out trying to get a younger audience in. Yeah, I'm doing something with it, you know, and I'm continuing to, to uh, try to develop it and, and encourage people to work with it. It's complicated because it's in so many, bits and pieces and parts, and uh, the, the, um, the possibility of making something very open, very shared, but at the same time very exclusive in what it actually is about, what it actually says. There's a certain uh, conundrum of that, and especially like with something on like online with respect to the arts, you know, so that with the creation of the YouTube Symphony Project, there was always the necessity for me to be the kind of uh, tough guy about what exactly is the quality of this? How, how excellent is the piece we're doing? How excellent are the people that are going to be doing it? You know, what we, at, at, sometimes I would say to them, look, if we were trying to create, if we were trying to create, how should I say, oh, oh, well, just everybody should be able to come in and do whatever they want to do. So, wait a minute. If we were, talk, were talking about the YouTube symphony, what if we were talking about the YouTube football team? Would you want to say, oh, well, anybody who can, you know, if they can catch or not or whatever like that, just you know, have them come in, whatever, be, be fine. Uh-uh, you'd be saying they have to be the most ferocious, the most fabulous. And this, this, this idea that, um, that because something has enormous distribution that it cannot be ferociously excellent I, I do not accept that idea. I think it's really important that the, the, the abilities to, to transmit a specific uh, kind of information be associated with just how enormously excellent it is, how challengingly excellent it is, and that it offers a kind of model of, of inspiration for people. Because you know, people, to, to be something like a musician particularly, it's a very lonely thing. It's a conundrum because it brings people together. Music brings people together so much, but the process of learning to be a musician is very often a very lonely one. And a lot of kids stop doing that because it's too lonely for them to practice. They don't know whether they're doing it right or wrong. They don't know if anybody cares about it. They feel just so geeky and isolated. So the process of saying, 
use this technology to put people in touch with one another to understand there actually are a lot of people out there and that you can be in touch with them and kind of say, oh, here's a helpful hint I saw online the other day about how to play this piece to try putting your finger here instead of here. Or here's, here's a, a, an inspirational message from somebody who remembers just what this process was like uh, when they were doing it 40 years ago and they're now doing whatever they're doing. Or, so there have to be many voices out there who speak up for these things. And there's a particular moment in your life that that voice is the right one for you. Uh, I have some things to say, but I'm pretty, as you pointed out so kindly, pretty old and, <laughs> and exotic uh, to, to be able to reach some of the people that I would like to reach. But that's why I'm trying to work with younger people who are, whatever they are, uh, ace cellists and triathletes or whatever, say, fine, you've got to get out there. You've got to be the ones who talk to people who will think, wow, if someone like that, someone as cool as that loves this music, maybe there really is something for me in it to continue my, my connection with it. If you have questions, write them down and pass them in this way. Um, you also have, I used a sports analogy, or, or an analogy between sports and music that I appreciated. I heard in an interview where uh, you spoke to a music critic and named five names. <laughs> Tell that story. Uh, I was talking with a music journalist and I said, well, you guys are not personally involved in this enough and that said, Here, here's the names, and I gave the guy five names. Who are these people? He did not know who they were. And I said, well, these people are all the solo bass clarinetists of the top five orchestras in the country. I said, so you don't know who these guys are, but if they were shortstops or linebackers or something like that, of course you'd know their names and you'd know all their statistics and were they injured last year or not, and they came in for so-and-so, you know everything about them. So what is that strange thing that's been part of the music culture? And I feel very silly about this sometimes, that I'll give a performance with an orchestra, and it'll be written in great detail about what I did. But what should be written about is much more what these particular performers even say, oh, maybe that uh, MTT created an opportunity for the brilliant second violin section or for the fabulous solo bass clarinet players or whatever, something happened really which was involved with the dialogue between what the actual performers are doing. Because it's very clear to me that the performers are the ones who are giving the performance. And I have this curious role which is somewhere between being director and coach and whatever it is that uh, tries to create a space in which they can feel secure enough, inspired enough to do uh, the amazing things of which they are capable. And you've, um, in these Keeping Score programs that you've done, which I also encourage you all, if you haven't seen, uh, Michael and the San Francisco Symphony have done uh, six or seven uh, one-hour programs, each devoted to a specific composer and a, and a particular piece, Copeland, Stravinsky, uh, Tchaikovsky, Beethoven, they're really, really remarkable. And a two-part one on Mahler, in which Michael on camera has a, um, in which on camera Michael has an epiphany in the town square in Czechoslovakia that is really not to be missed. Um, but what you do in these is you highlight the players, the soloists, and through that experience, when you go to the symphony now, you feel a little bit closer to these people, that you see, you've seen them age over the years, and you see them play, and um, 
it's, it's really a, a great gift, again, that, that you've given. Yeah, this is, all this is important because, you see, musicians, all of us were raised to think, okay, we're going to get into one of these big orchestras or big opera companies, and we're going to do it as we do. And these, these institutions are venerable and wonderful, what they, they, what they do. It's only gradually dawning on everybody that it's also our responsibilities with these companies to ensure that the tradition is passed on, is available to everyone who wants to be a part of it. The, no, this, this, what's happened with the schools, what's happened with all these traditional organizations through which people used to have the opportunities to play an instrument or to sing in a chorus or all of these things, so much of this has disappeared. So it's really essential that the major arts organizations come in and encourage and help to shape back to, you know, after school programs or things that are gonna happen online or I think, it's a terrible word, but, but really to, so it, to, to make it possible to empower parents to do what they wanna do. The, I know so many people who've come up to me and said, you know, we just feel so badly we're not succeeding in giving our kids the connection with culture that we got. We kind of missed the opportunity for our kids to get music, whatever, because we weren't quite sure how to do it or how to, to fit it into our lives. I have this great vision that such things have to be thought of as something that families can do together and just a little bit at a time. I, my parents had this thing that they did with me where, where before we sat down to have dinner, they subscribed to a thing called Masters in miniature, masterpieces in miniature that the the, uh, the uh, Metropolitan Museum put out at that point, and basically it was a book, it was a pa paperback book, and it said uh, something like "Birthday of the Infanta" by Velasquez, and it, then it said something about Velasquez and something about the picture, but there was no picture, the page was blank, but with it there came a whole big sheet of like postage stamp kinds of. Of, of reproductions. So what I had to do was we read this thing about Velasquez and the Infanta, and then I'd have to go and I'd have to find the right picture and then moisten it and paste it into the book. And this was just this little thing that we did before dinner. And the result of that was that, you know, by the time I was 10 or 12, I could go to a museum and say, oh, that's a Velasquez, that's a Murillo, that's a Dutria, and all these other insufferable things <laughs> that I could do. But the point is that it really was part of my life, who the artists were, and also it was a part of that my relationship to the artists was also part of my relationship to my family. And so it was not an abstraction, it was warm and real and centering. How to do that online is something I'm thinking about. Um, one of the questions, says that given the demands of the marketplace and how records are made, uh, you've recorded 120 albums. Is there any, if you could do whatever you wanted and not have to consider, that you would record? That I would re-record? Or record. Or record. Yeah. I mean, is there music that you haven't been able to do? I guess the question is really that because there isn't a market for it. I'm an absurdly lucky guy. I can do a lot of what I want to do. I mean, there's a uh, there's an avant-garde Italian con uh, Italian composer 
uh, called Giacinto Scelsi, whose music I like very much. I kind of knew him in, in Italy in the, in the late 70s. And his music is really out there, even today. It, for, for most people, it doesn't bear any resemblance to something that they would think of as being music. But there's really something amazing to it, and it's also sonically most amazing. And it's kind of only just now that there's a technology that exists to be able to record this music in the way that it could be heard. So, so that's the kind of project that I will, will work on. And, and uh, I have a chance of making it happen. I'm, I'm very lucky in that way. Uh, do you write poetry or practice any other form of art making besides music? And how does that inform your music? I do write poetry, and I, I wrote, write a lot of lyrics, uh, and uh, I write down a lot of my uh, dreams I, and remembrances of things from early childhood, and then I, uh, I cook a lot. My father was a wonderful cook, and cooking is a kind of meditative, I, I realize, more almost trance-like experience. As my father did, I don't use any recipes. I just, you know, he, he had grown up in a, in a Chinese household and also in, in various Romanian and Russian and, and European situations. And he just, you know, went to the market and got things and did things. And I, I caught myself up here in Bolinas the other day and I was cooking something and I realized I was making motions like this. I was kind of like, <laughs> some kind of mystic culinary martial art. I was kind of... <laughs> Tasted good, right, Josh? Uh, where do you see uh, folk songs in the current culture coming from? Is it still possible to uh, create real folk music? It's really hard, isn't it? Because uh, we're enormously self-conscious these days. Uh, but I think, yeah, I, I think I think that the, the, such music is is being created. Perhaps we don't have any exposure to it or know about it. Perhaps even the people who are making it don't realize that that is what they are. Uh, they're making, I mean, it's with all, in all musical genres. Hip hop, for example, uh, there are some extraordinary things that people are doing within hip hop, but it's not top 40 hip hop. There's really very, I mean, very abstract, amazing, beyond anything Stockhausen uh, attempted to do, kinds of things that are happening within such genres. But I only hear them on bizarre little FM stations as I'm in my car sometimes, and I'm thinking, what? is that? And then I can never find out what it is because the station only announces what they play every week or something like that. <laughs> and uh, this will be the last one, I think. Uh, what do you think about the sounds NASA has recorded from space? <laughs> uh, I don't know quite what to think about them because they are allegories uh, it's been decided. How they've been scanned and how they've been transferred into sound involves many, many decisions, every one of which, it seems to me, greatly uh, determines what the final result will be. And I haven't looked 
enough into this to know, you know, what what is the nature of the of the raw material that is um, coming through. But someone asked me if you know, if I write other things. I'd actually like to, to read one thing, Please. if I can, because I, I mentioned that you know all this stuff is kind of all this stuff is connected for me, and that I I write all this stuff down, whether it's in music or or words and. Uh, one of the things I write down is uh, my dreams. And it's clear to me sometimes when I have dreams that this is an important dream. So here's one. I discover myself in a crowd of well-dressed people, some in black tie, others simply well-turned out in so-called festive attire. We're in a big house or country estate. There are many rooms and tables groaning with drinks and deluxe finger food. People are milling around waiting for something to start. The something, it turns out, is an auction. The most serious bidders are all jammed into an inner sanctum where the real action is. But there are little crowds of people here and there watching the whole thing on monitors. The buzz of the crowd and the vague cocktail music provides the background for the announcements of the lots and the bidding of the buyers. Oh, it's a charity event, wouldn't you know? And the mordant tones of the laconic auctioneer. Lot 29, an archaic hand of gray schist, probably a fragment of a Bithynian votive or funerary frieze circa 500 BC. Lot 72, a sled said to have been long to Millard Fillmore. Lot 85, a collection of Chen Lung gilt and kingfisher feather hair ornaments, one lucky bat lacking a wing. An antimacassar made of unraveled Nazca ponchos from the collection of Eva Peron's niece. <laughs> Do I hear any more? Fair warning, sold to the lady in the sage chignon. Thank you, ma'am. I'm not really paying much attention until I hear. And lot 92, bought by Michael Tilson Thomas for half a million dollars. Congratulations, sir, thank you. I can't understand this. I haven't been in the main room. I'm certainly not bidding. Then three officials come up to me and say, Mr. Thomas, here's your item. If you could just give us a check, you can take it home with you right now. I tell them I haven't been bidding. It has nothing to do with me. I don't even know what the lot is. But they say, no, sir, it is a matter of public record. You purchased the lot. Now it is yours, and you must pay for it. <laughs> I panic. There's no way I can come up with that much money. I'll have to sell my apartment or borrow, or they try to put me at my ease. They say, never mind, sir. No problem. You can simply sign for it now. Later, of course, the full tariff will be due. So I sign. The official says, thank you, sir. Here's your lot. He puts something cool and smooth into my open palm and closes my fingers around it and slips away into the crowd, which mysteriously is melted away. I'm alone, and everything is suddenly quiet. I open up my hand and see it there, the perfect pale sapphire. From it, the star shines up into my face. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Filson Thomas.
Thank you all.